Afghanistan is not, in fact, a nation stuck in the Stone Age. You know, it's a nation of young people. You know, young Afghans are actively engaged with the outside world through social media, through technology. They care very much about 21st century ideas. Welcome back to Immigrantly. I am your host, Savia Khan. This week, we are bringing you an episode that is very close to my heart. Over the summer, I watched, along with the rest of the world, as over two decades of war in Afghanistan, quote-unquote, ended in a chaotic U.S. withdrawal. I was in Pakistan at the time. And believe it or not, my village is six hours' drive from Kabul. Most of the Afghans that America had promised to evacuate were left behind in Afghanistan under Taliban rule, a group that has made it explicitly clear they have no interest in protecting or respecting human rights. The scenes at Kabul airport leading up to the September 11th U.S. withdrawal deadline were nothing short of devastating. Desperate to flee Taliban rule, Afghans are resorting to this, grasping at U.S. military aircraft and risking their lives. Some hung onto the wheels and fell to their death. Those left behind... I'm sure a lot of you watched that. And amidst the chaos, a bombing by ISIS at the airport killed over 170 Afghans. Yet, President Biden stood by the U.S.'s withdrawal and placed blame on the Afghani people who have suffered decades of war and instability. Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. Here I want to clarify. I'm well aware that U.S. troop withdrawal was inevitable. To put it bluntly, U.S. was an occupier in Afghanistan, and therefore the troops leaving, however complicated, is the right thing to do. Having said that, this deeply harmful and blatantly wrong narrative about Afghanis is nothing new. For decades, Afghanis have been stripped of their humanity by narratives steeped in colonization and white supremacy. Today, I am so excited to have Khalid Husseini on Immigrantly. Khalid Husseini is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Kite Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and And the Mountains Echoed. He's also a U.S. goodwill envoy to the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and founder of the Khalid Husseini Foundation, a nonprofit that provides humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan. Khalid's books are a window into the life of an Afghani, which makes it so special because Khalid doesn't claim to represent the entire population. Instead, he shares his lived experiences. For this conversation, I am also passing the mic to one of our content writers, Eliza Kazmi. Eliza is a first-generation Afghan and Pakistani-American. 
Yes, we all have multi-hyphenated identities on this show. It is part of what makes Immigrantly and us so special. Thank you, Sadia. Yes, very multi-hyphenated. It's both a bit of a blessing and a curse, I have to admit. I mean, my entire life I've been told by people that are supposed to be part of my community that I'm not Afghan enough, not Pakistani enough, and uh, certainly not American enough. Mm. But I am still and always will be deeply proud of my Afghan identity, as well as my Pakistani and American identities. And even though I don't speak Farsi and I've never had the privilege of going to Afghanistan, I've always felt deeply connected to the country. I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with Khalid Husseini. Growing up reading his books, they really offered a window into the Afghanistan that I didn't hear about on the news. And it helped me really picture the country that my parents and grandparents love to talk about so much. So let's jump right into it. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Immigrantly. We are so happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, it is no secret that I am a big fan of your work. I'm curious, when you're writing your books, do you picture who the audience is going to be and does that shape the stories in any way? You know, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast and thank you for your kind and generous words about my writing. You know, it's been a, a really wonderful thing. Um, I've received so many letters and emails from young uh, Afghan-Americans like yourself who've never had the opportunity of actually living in Afghanistan. And, and my books have provided a window into the world of their parents uh, and their, their relatives there. For me, when I'm writing, I write essentially for an audience of one. I write for myself. Um, I climb down into a form of mental bunker where I try to close everything off and I just engage directly with the material one-on-one. -on -one. What I found is that if I uh, let other voices in, if I begin to worry about the concerns of, of this group or that group, that a kind of agenda enters the process and inevitably it will uh, pollute it. So I've um, written my books largely for myself. Uh, it's written the books largely because I've been deeply interested in the plight and the human drama of a set of characters. Um, and I want to see it through and I want to see um, what will happen to them, you know, who they are and how the, the arc of the story will transform them. Um, and then whatever happens um, afterwards is largely a byproduct. Um, so, for instance, um, it was not my aim in The Kite Runner to educate anybody on what Afghanistan looked like before the Soviet invasion, but it was necessary, indispensable to my storytelling. And therefore, the first 100 pages or so of The Kite Runner are centered in a world that is no longer uh, a world of pre-Soviet war, uh, 1970s Afghanistan, which happened to be the time and place where, where I was growing up there. Um, and, and so it, it, the byproduct is it offers a, a, a window into that bygone world. You've always been very adamant about not expressing that yourself as an expert on Afghanistan and you at the end of the day are a writer and are bringing your own narratives to your work. And that's something that um, is I appreciate, right, because I think that sometimes Afghanistan can be portrayed as a monolith in mainstream media and um, 
perhaps the the success of your novels and people have been claiming that you know it's a representation of Afghanistan is a testament to that that people will grasp onto something a little bit outside of the mainstream and say that oh well this is this is the story it's a story um, and and so leaning into that a little bit I'm curious um, other than reading your books what are some ways that non Afghans um, can educate themselves about Afghanistan and particularly about the current situation that we're seeing there. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up and uh, from uh, with respect to my books. I have never intended my books to be uh, a kind of exhaustive manifesto on all things Afghan. And frankly, horrifies me when people at book signings tell me that everything they know about Afghanistan is is derived from my books. I, I, I really cringe both inwardly and sometimes outwardly when I hear that. Uh, because my these are works of fiction, they're from a very narrow perspective, which is the n- narrow uh, perspective of somebody who's lived in asylum for 40 years and is writing about the homeland he left when he was 11. Uh, so I'm always very careful to make sure that people understand that. But I, I do think that if people want to understand more about Afghanistan, um, you know, there's 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 nothing as valuable as just talking to people. So if there are Afghans in your community, if, you know, your kid goes to school with an, with an Afghan student and you know the parents, you know, talk to them. And what, one of the things I've found is that Afghans are actually very generous in talking to people about their life and about their experiences and what they went through and, and what, they, they, what they think the country is going through, where they think the country is headed. So talking to to Afghans in the community, be they in your school or or uh, you know in in some kind of local group, is is enormously uh, enormously valuable. You know, I think what you said about the hyphenated identities that's so much of being someone that lives in America. That's part of my identity. I'm uh, Afghan, Pakistani, American, and there's just so much complicated nuance between all of those hyphens. Um, and I think that sometimes people, whether or not you're a world-renowned writer or you're just a person living your day-to-day, are expected to be representatives of a nation. And we can't be, right? All we can do is guide people and educate them and um, help uplift stories, which uh, I think you do beautifully. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your refugee experience. As you mentioned, you came into the U.S. in the 1980s um, uh, under asylum. Um, you are also now a goodwill ambassador for the UN's uh, refugee agency, the UNHCR. So you have a really great holistic view of the refugee experience. And I- I'm curious how you feel um, or what you feel the similarities and differences are in the way that refugees are treated and talked about today than they were when you came to the U.S. in the 1980s. Well, I came to the U.S. in 1980, um, and in in March of that year, I, I arrived. My family arrived in September, and in March of that year, then President Carter signed the American um, Refugee Act of 1980, which um, raised the refugee cap to 50,000 per year, and allowed for a whole series of procedures uh, through which the United States could receive and process refugees. Um, there were systems in place uh, when I arrived here to see to it that refugees were welcome. There were settlement to communities that they had access to Medicaid and social security cards and, and the rest of it. Um, refugee resettlement agencies in those days um, enjoyed um, bipartisan support in Congress and widespread public support, both in so-called red and, and blue states. I, I just think today the issue of refugees has become um, much more politicized. 
Um, when Donald Trump was elected into office, he brought uh, some significant uh, changes to U.S. asylum laws. Um, uh, the U.S. admitted the lowest number of refugees it has since the signing of the Refugee Act in 1980 during uh, the, the Trump administration. Refugee aid organizations were um, underfunded um, and uh, they were either down, they had to either downsize or close shops altogether. And if you look at uh, public narratives today, you listen to what people, the way that people talk about refugees, it tends to be much more um, polarized and, and people tend to speak along party lines. Is it really our responsibility to welcome thousands of potentially unvetted refugees from Afghanistan? If history is any guide, and it's always a guide, we will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. You know, when I look at the way people speak about refugees today, there are two common tropes. There are either um, a kind of a monolithic community defined by victimhood and perpetual need on the one hand, or at the other end, they're uh, an invading tr uh, group of, um, of people who pose a security threat uh, to otherwise safe American communities. Um, and, you know, um, since we're talking about representation today, one of the things I've tried to do about um, in advocating for refugees is to address some of these tropes and to reach for representation that exists outside of these, uh, I think, these two very extreme tropes. Um, you know, in my view, refugees more than any other community are in a better position to appreciate and understand the privileges, the privileges of freedom because they've paid such a high personal cost for the liberties that they've been given. So there's this, um, you know, it's not to say that, that all refugees are exceptional. I, I, think, I, I think it's unfair to put that kind of pressure on refugees. Refugees should have the right to be mediocre like everybody else. But if you look at refugees on balance, in this country, for instance, you see that what they really have done as a, uh, as a collectively as a group is uh, bring innovation, uh, is they've enriched our cultural institutions, they've enriched our um, public institutions. Uh, within the refugee community, there's this very strong refugee ethos. And I think my parents were powerful examples of it, which is to be hardworking to embrace education, um, to um, work towards being not only self-reliant, but to one day contribute to the host community uh, that welcomed you. And the evidence bears, bears that out. You know, if you look at uh, refugees in the United States, um, refugee-owned businesses, you know, pay billions of dollars every year in taxes to the building of roads and bridges and schools that you and I and millions of other fellow Americans uh, benefit from. You know, when you're talking about <laughs> refugees are allowed to be mediocre, I think that's something I have to remind myself of all the time. I think I get trapped in a very American-centric narrative um, or, or, or trapped in that that thinking. And it's like, they're, they, we are all people, right? We make mistakes and we are imperfect. And I think what you're talking about, the monolithic, the stereotypes, the um, black and white of it all is where I think we're 
we're getting lost. And you talked obviously a lot about media representation or, or just representation in general. Um, I'm curious, how do you feel that 20 plus years of very flawed mainstream media representation of Afghanistan and Afghan people has led to the situation that we see today in a humanitarian sense? You know, there's this, I'm, I'm sure you know it and many fellow Afghan Americans who are listening to this podcast or Afghans elsewhere or listening to this know this, that there's all these false mythologies around Afghanistan, which we hear all the time, that Afghanistan is ungovernable, that it's a, a, a lawless no man's land, um, that justice in Afghanistan is delivered through the barrel of a rifle, um, that it's a land of endless tribalism where women are silent and submissive and they're governed by men who are bearded and live in caves. Afghan women know through hard experience what the rest of the world is discovering. The brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorist. And who are governed themselves by an uncompromising medieval religion. You know, um, the trope is that Afghans are warlike people, that they're always engaged in war either with foreigners or among themselves. Um, forgetting very conveniently that for the vast majority of the 20th century, Afghanistan lived at peace with itself and with its neighbors, while Western nations engaged not in, not in one, but two world wars that killed and displaced millions of people. Um, you know, that's not to say that, that there's not elements of truth uh, in, in some of those tropes, but you know, if you listen to the way that uh, Afghans are represented and have been represented in the media, you'd almost be forgiven for thinking that the majority of Afghans are warlords or fanatics or uh, drug dealers. Um, instead of the reality, which, as is always the case, is far more banal and far more complicated, uh, that the vast majority of Afghans are, you know, ordinary people. They're teachers, they're merchants, they're farmers, um, people who've, um, many of them have had to flee their homes because of violence and, and instability. Um, Afghanistan is not, in fact, a nation stuck in the Stone Age. You know, it's a nation of young people, uh, almost 70% are under the age of 25. I had the chance of to go to Kabul and meet a lot of sort of young um, Afghan urban professionals in the urban centers, in hubs like Kabul. You know, young Afghans are actively engaged with the outside world through social media, through technology. They care very much about 21st century ideas like social justice, like representation, um, like women's rights, like uh, protecting the environment uh, and so forth. I, I, I just think that these myths and the perpetuation of these and tropes and misrepresentations are harmful because they, they inform um, the national dialogue around important issues. Um, for instance, in the current moment, um, we're talking about um, uh, you know, Afghans arriving in the United States, uh, uh, the admission of Afghan refugees in the United States. And, and if you listen to uh, different media outlets, certainly conservative media outlets, Afghan asylum seekers are being painted as um, fanatics. Afghanistan is the biggest national security threat. And as uh, invaders and as terrorists. What do we do now that we have brought so many of them here? I think these types of, um, you know, oversimplified narratives 
and caricatures that frame and uh, permeate the political discourse and unfortunately close up space for what should be genuine dialogue and uh, an expression um, of ideas. You talk about young people, um, and that's something that I've heard a lot from, um, I don't want to say older folks, <laughs> but in, in my in my Afghan elders, you know, I've, um, in August, when I was speaking to people within our community about what was going on in Afghanistan as the U.S. was withdrawing, so many of them were just tired. They said, I don't have much fight left in me. I'll do what I can. I'll donate and I'll do what I can, but I don't have the fight left in me. And um, I was part of an organizing effort of a global protest that occurred um, in August by mostly young Afghans um, to raise up our voices and to um, advocate on behalf of Afghans that were seeking asylum and um, a whole host of other things. But, you know, so many of us are disconnected from the country itself. I've never had the privilege of stepping foot in Kabul. Um, I'm also, like I said, I'm, I am a hyphenated identity. So I am multiple things, though I have deep, deep love for Afghanistan. You definitely do not remember this, but we met way back when I was about 13 at an event. And I asked you to sign my copy of The Kite Runner, and you very kindly did. Um, and I just found it recently and you wrote in it, keep writing, because I'm sure I talked to you about wanting to be a writer. Um, and that advice, I mean, it's carried me to where I am today. I still write. I'm still a writer. So I think that's just that's a testament to the power of talking to younger generations and guiding them in some way. Um, and, you know, you yourself have raised children in America. So I'm I'm curious what you think, how. Um, the younger generations, as we have more and more generations that don't have the opportunity to go to Afghanistan, how can we stay connected to a culture and a country that we've never seen and continue to fight for it? Because it doesn't really seem like anyone's going to do the fight for us. No, it's it's something that we have to do. You know, I remember when um, when I arrived, when my family arrived here in September of 1980, we were exhausted from travel. And that night before we went to bed, my dad gave all of us kids, one aspirin each. I guess he thought it helped uh, uh, jet lag. I don't know why he thought that. But he kind of gave us over the next few days in a series of sort of either individual or group conversations in a kind of a fragmented way, a, a, a kind of um, words of advice that he, that he gave us. Um, and, um, and, and I guess I would sum it up as saying that, look, um, as Afghans that have now come to the United States, uh, where you find yourself is a privilege and it's not a right. Um, you've been given an opportunity to forge a meaningful life, to help build a community, to be part of it and uh, share in its hopes and in its aspirations. You have a chance to work hard for what you want, uh, to study hard. You have a chance to set an example for others and you have a chance and in fact a responsibility to be a credit to your family and to your community and to always remember where he came from. Um, and that always stuck with me, I guess, in ways that I've never um, openly acknowledged, I guess, but I believe it's been in sort of an operating in my head for a long time. That's been a, a, guide, a guiding principle of mine through my life here in the United States as somebody living in asylum. Um, and I and I realize that that advice is is 
is not earth shattering and probably countless immigrant parents have given that same series of advice to to their um, uh, to their kids. Um, but it's sound enough and I, I think it still holds true today. But as far as the, you know, how the Afghan American community can stay together and and, and what, what I can say to them that would be helpful. I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm far more modest when it comes to that. I'm, I'm actually much more um, into the business of learning from young Afghan Americans than I am of, of passing anything to them and advising them on anything. I'm, I'm just, um, I think I'm really inspired by the success and innovations of um, so many young Afghan Americans, whether it be in technology, in finance, in, in commerce. Um, you know, frankly, people like yourself who... Um, are leading communities and setting an example and 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 guiding important conversations about important issues. Um, if I look at the present moment, um, I'm just really uplifted by the way young Afghan Americans, many of whom have never set foot in Afghanistan, and only know it through the stories of their elders or through the reading of books. How so many of them have joined hands across the United States to welcome their fellow Afghan refugees as they come to the United States. They've volunteered for refugee resettlement agencies. Um, they've donated items on wish lists. They've offered their homes as temporary residences for arriving refugees. You know, I, I think it's so inspiring that how they've shown a real sense of common purpose and, and solidarity. This episode is brought to you by Stamps.com. If you are a small business owner, you know how much hard work and effort goes into maintaining a small business. I know because I am an indie podcaster. So if you've got a small business, you know that there is nothing more valuable than your time. So stop wasting it on trips to the post office. Stamps.com makes it easy to mail and ship right from your computer. Stamps.com basically brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're in an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer. No special supplies or equipment and within minutes, Believe you me, within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. There is no risk. And with my promo code POD, P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in POD, P-O-D. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. The advice that your dad gave you... Um is really powerful um, and very heavy. And um, I think that is something that I've been grappling with a little bit of this idea of the pressure that we put on ourselves because we um, we ourselves consider 
consider we consider ourselves to be representatives of a nation right um and that's heavy and um you have explored intergenerational trauma in, in your books um and that's something that i think is very much a to- uh, part of the conversation right is being cognizant of not passing down trauma or trying to unpack the trauma that we have and the trauma of war is so deep and the trauma of displacement is so deep um I just I'm just curious what your your thoughts are on that about yes while we have an immense responsibility to advocate for our country and still fight for it um how do we care for ourselves how do you care for yourself well, I think you 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 live an authentic life to the best ability that you have. You know, you do the best with what you have. Um, I think my father's advice holds true. It's it's uh, whether I want it to or not. It's kind of been something that's been at the center of my life that I've built my life around. Um, I don't spend too much time thinking about my responsibilities per se. I know that my children don't, but I think it is important. Um, you know, for instance, in my in my household, um, since the day that my kids were born, we had no illusions about uh, those kids, my son and my daughter, having a connection with Afghanistan that in any way approached the one that I have. Um, having lived there, spent my formative years there. Um, but it is important to me that they understand where they come from, that they understand um, the traditions and the, and the customs and the culture that uh, directly or indirectly shaped who they are. And that begins with language for me. And so, um, you know, we've, um, we've done everything we could in our household to make sure that our kids can understand uh, the language that I grew up speaking, which is Dari, and that they can read it and that they can write it. Uh, because I, I feel that language is, is um, to put it in a kind of a facile, uh, cliched analogy, that it's sort of the key that lets you into all the different rooms in a house, if house is a culture. Um, so that, that's very important. Um, at the same time, and I, I realize that they have their own lives that they're living, um, that they're essentially Americans that are growing up in this country with many of the interests and, and, uh, and concerns and preoccupations that only Americans have. But I think their life is only enriched uh, in ways that they may not appreciate yet as children, but that they will when they're your age, um, um, that, that this facet of their personality actually enriches who they are and actually deepens their understanding of, of themselves, of their family, of their background, and of how they fit into the world. Yeah, language definitely is a key. And as someone that lacks that key, um... I, I hope that carries even more weight because not not having language and not having access to the language of my ancestors is devastating and something that I am always trying to remedy and learn where I can. I want to talk actually about your most recent book, Sea Prayer, which is a beautiful illustrated um, piece of fiction that you say was inspired by the story of Alan Curdy, who... Um, was a three-year-old boy from Syria who passed away while trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea and um, more specifically the moral outrage that you felt and I think that was the last time I can really pinpoint global outrage about the refugee crisis but that same crisis is continuing today as we've talked about and I really fear that the rage is faltering because the situation has become so normalized. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How do we keep the rage 
uh, going or do we need to channel a different type of emotion? No, I, I, I think it's strange that we can be utterly gutted and inspired to act by a single story while, you know, paradoxically, larger scale human suffering registers with us as abstraction. And um, I think the story of the tragedy of, of, of poor Alan Kurdi is, is a perfect illustration. You know, refugees and migrants had been dying in the Mediterranean by the thousands uh, long before Alan Kurdi did. Um, but, you know, that one photograph, um, that powerful photograph told a story. It told a story of a young life wasted, a story of a family in despair, of a country in ruins. And, you know, and the seeming indifference of the world, you know, um, you know, in the wake of that terrible picture going viral, Internet searches for Syria and refugees went through the roof and refugee aid organizations um, received exponential growth, um, experienced ex exponential growth um, in donations and I guess in some ways it's counterintuitive and in other ways it's not because we are, you know, at the end of the day, as humans, we are a species that's wired for metaphor. Um, we, in order for us to experience any kind of meaningful internal shift, we have to be invited into the experience of others where hopefully we'll run into something that catches uh, something that speaks to us, that angers us, that outrages us, that moves us, that touches us, that makes us laugh, makes us angry. So you asked your question of what can we do? I, I look, I, I'm under no illusion that storytelling is enough because at the end of the day, we need states to act together in solidarity. We need funding. We need policy change. But storytelling is an incredibly essential and powerful tool in that process because all the things that I mentioned, the policy change on all those things, live downstream from culture. And so we have to get people to care. We have to get people to feel a personal connection in whatever small way with the plight of millions of fellow human beings. And so that's why I continue um, to work with the UNHCR and that's why I continue to listen to stories and to um, and to distribute them and, and tell those stories because at the end of the day I think that's the most powerful teacher of empathy that we have and for any kind of action to happen you have to get people to care first. In an interview that you did in 2014 the interviewer asked you the war was winding down even then, and they said there's a fear that as the war in Afghanistan comes to an end that the country could slip away if the world doesn't watch. But right now it feels like the country is slipping away as the world watches. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, um, I'm like you. I imagine the way you are and your parents are. I'm, I'm left with um, dread and an open-ended worry. Um, I worry about where the country is headed. Uh, you say the, the world is watching as, as Afghanistan falls away. Well, Afghanistan is slowly falling away toward what could be a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, you know, um, it's important to take a couple of minutes to talk about this um, because Afghanistan, uh, I'm not sure how many people in your audience 
realize, but Afghanistan is on the verge of collapse. This is a country that was an impoverished nation in the best of days, even in the halcyon days of the 1970s that I repeatedly refer to. The economy of the country for the last 20 years has depended almost entirely on foreign aid. Uh, it's what propped up the country, and now that the Taliban have come back, um, the central bank's $9 billion in reserves, most of which were held in the U.S., have been frozen. The IMF is holding another $435 million out of concern for, um, you know, quote, a lack of clarity around the new regime. And so in a country where millions of people are living at or below poverty line already, the fear is that a severe economic downturn will push millions of more Afghans into despair and poverty and cause the kinds of mass exodus that we saw uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, it's also worth mentioning um, that the Taliban are now um, holding the reins to a country where one out of three people live with food insecurity. As you and I are talking on this podcast right now, 14 million Afghans don't know where the next meal is coming from. Um, Two million Afghan children are living with acute malnourishment and it's estimated that in the next year, half the kids under the age of five will suffer from malnourishment. Um, This is further exacerbated, unfortunately, by the fact that Afghanistan has been hit hard by climate change. There's a terrible drought going on in Afghanistan right now. It comes on, a, on the heels of an already terrible drought in 2018 that saw farmers um, sell their equipments and their lands and their livestock, often at a loss just to make ends meet. It's estimated now that 40% of crops will be lost this year and that livestock will be decimated. Uh, and so that obviously compounds the concerns that we have over food insecurity and displacement. And as a final piece to this already distressing picture is the fact that this is all happening in the midst of rising cases of COVID-19, especially the Delta variant um, and the healthcare system in Afghanistan that is on the verge of collapse. You know, so many um, uh, international aid workers and skilled Afghan aid workers have left the country. So all this paints a fairly concerning picture of an Afghanistan that may be weeks to months uh, uh, about to come. And so I, I think as the international community watches what's going on in Afghanistan, it has a tough decision to make. Um, it, it, they need to make a decision that balances, on the one hand, their, I think, understandable concerns about the new regime, given its track record. And on the other hand, with preventing a massive humanitarian catastrophe um, and addressing the needs of a population uh, that is losing by the millions access to basic goods and services uh, and what the destabilizing of that country means not only for the people of Afghanistan, but also for the region. So that's where I think the international community is and the decision that they have to make. It is a devastating picture that you paint, um, but that is the reality. Um, And we've talked about the ways that immigrantly listeners, right, non-international community members can educate themselves about Afghanistan, but what can they do? Can they do anything in this moment to help? 
Oh, sure, sure you can. There's a lot of things you can do. You know, there are tens of thousands of Afghan refugees arriving in the United States. So if you want to focus on those refugees coming to the United States, you can help so much. And I can speak about this from my own personal experience and how much it meant to my family when members of the community uh, uh, stepped up, uh, both Afghan and non, to help us with just simple things like how to you know, how to get a driver's license, how to get a, get to the DMV, how to apply for a job, how to make a doctor's appointment, all those simple things. Uh, so much people can do. People can volunteer for refugee resettlement agencies. Uh, they have seen an, a real uptick in volunteer applications. Um, every refugee resettlement agency has um, a wish list of items that they need, uh, clothing, toys, so on and so forth, furniture, so you can you can donate and you can also write to your leaders in Congress, you know, and ask that Afghanistan not be forgotten, that the rights of ordinary Afghans, particularly women and girls in Afghanistan, that they uh, um, work together to apply appropriate political pressure on the regime in Afghanistan to respect the essential human rights of Afghanistan and to write to their leaders and say that um, you know, while the country and, and is, 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 is deciding on a political strategy and whether to recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government or not, it must not forget the fact that there are millions of people who are losing access to services, millions of people who are struggling with very basic things like shelter and food. You know, over 600,000 people in Afghanistan have become displaced since just since the beginning of this year. It's mostly internally inside Afghanistan, but it could be just a matter of time before they head for international borders for for protection. So advocate for those people, advocate for um, uh, the neighboring countries to keep their borders open, advocate for the funding of those agencies that safeguard and protect the rights of displaced people and provide life-saving emergency services to people who, 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 who are displaced and who cross international borders. So there's a lot of things you can do from small, very granular to, to sort of more uh, macro. Um, lots of different ways you can help and get involved. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be sure to share a whole breadth of resources on our social media channels from um, things that people can do from calling their members of Congress to donating um, goods and funds. So um, as we are wrapping up, and I do want to be mindful of the time, um, I have to ask the question I think everyone wants to ask, what are you working on? Do you have any um, projects, books, and the works that uh, you want to share with us or anything in your UN work that you would like to share with us? <laughs> Nothing that I want to share, frankly. <laughs> I've learned that lesson long ago, not to share anything about work in progress. Um, I have to say that I was at work on a novel and a couple of different writing projects, but it, everything that I've been working on has been put on hold because of what's happened in Afghanistan. And I'm focusing all my energies right now in working with my foundation and, um, and, and partners in the community and different NGOs uh, to address um, issues that are going on in Afghanistan and also to address um, um, issues facing Afghans who will be arriving here in the United States uh, as refugees. So on Immigrantly, we typically wrap up um, with this question. If you could describe America in a word or a phrase, how would you do that? <laughs> uh, that's really tough. You know, I, I... It's tough. You know, I, there's a... Um, one of my favorite artists is Bruce Springsteen, and he has a, a lovely line in one of his songs uh, that says, God have mercy on the man who doubts what he's sure of. And, 
it seems to me that here in the United States, we are doubting a whole slew of things that we used to be sure of. Um, you know, from the benefits of a free press to the moral rightness of our asylum policies to faith in our scientific community to the integrity of our elections. So, you know, in 2021, how else to define America but, you know, a land caught in a potentially existential struggle over how to define America. I think that's the central question facing this country right now. That might be my favorite answer we've ever gotten. That's, I think that perfectly sums it up. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to answer the same question about Afghanistan. So if you were to describe Afghanistan in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Hey, let, me, let me stick to something very simple. I think Afghanistan is home to the single greatest bread on the planet. That is an incredible answer. And I've heard the same from my grandfather that I will never know bread like it was in Afghanistan. So. I'll get letters <laughs> from US service members, men and women who served in Afghanistan and who tell me what a pleasure it was to meet um, you know, ordinary Afghans in villages and in cities. But they tell me that one of the things they will miss the most is that wonderful non. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we haven't gotten a chance to today? No, I think we're, I think we touched on a lot of things. I, I appreciate everything you do and I appreciate having voices like yourself in our community. I think they're essential and uh, thank you for making time for me today. That's our show. In a few weeks, we will be releasing a special episode of Immigranty with an Afghan journalist to dive into the current state of media in the country under Taliban rule. To learn more about that episode and stay in the loop on all things Immigrantly, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at Immigrantly pod. Take care.